Last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ together, and as Christians, we believe that Jesus died, and three days later, he rose from the dead. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses, people who claimed to have seen Jesus alive after the cross, and of course, those people believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They gave their testimony to others. They told people what they had seen. They began connecting the dots between the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many, many people in that time responded in faith. Even though they had not personally seen the risen Christ and Today, 2,000 years later, there have been many generations of people throughout history, billions of people, who sincerely believe that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. And none of us saw it with our own eyes. And yet, we believe because the story is compelling. And we keep telling it. And we keep believing it. But not everyone receives the news about the resurrection of Jesus in faith. It was true then, it's still true today. Many people reject the message. Or at least they're not sure what to do with it. And I think that our text for today was written in part to meet those people in their doubts. And it's not a particularly exciting story. So if you came last week, there's nobody you know who's going to get caught by their hair hanging in a tree and none of that today, okay? But um, I think this chapter is very important, so we're going to study it together. 2 Samuel 19, beginning in verse 9. So this is after Absalom is dead. The army has been defeated. David is victorious. All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back. So the popular young usurper Absalom is dead. The old king, who's, he's de- he's, David is old at this point, he's returning home, but the people are torn. They are arguing about how to receive David or whether to receive David. And if this happened in the 21st century, you might see bumper stickers or social media posts saying, not my king. Or, I voted for Absalom, okay? So, that's the idea here. They don't know what to do. David has won the battle, but people don't really want him back. They're not excited about David being their king. Verse 11. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring back the king to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers. 
You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? You should notice that even David's own tribe hesitated to welcome him back. And he's having to plead with them as family, which is something that he shouldn't have to do. Right? These are his people. Verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not bone of my bone and of my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joah. Now you may not remember, but Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. So he was the enemy general and David is offering the enemy general Joab's place by his side. And that's not going to end well. That's next week. But what it shows us now is David's willingness to forgive even the worst of his enemies. Even the worst. And not just to forgive them, but to promote them. Crazy, crazy radical grace, right? Verse 14. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man... So that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. And so the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. This was a symbolic event. David is going to cross over the Jordan River. And by doing that, he's demonstrating that the king is returning home. And he's being received by his people. Now I want you to imagine the Queen of England returning home from a long voyage. Right? Everybody lines up to greet her. They roll out the red carpet. The band plays God Save the Queen, right? And I think that's the idea here. This is some kind of symbolic you know, returning to glory event, right? He's coming home. The king is coming home. But the writer wants us to know specifically about three men who came to this ceremony. And that's what the rest of the story is about. So the first man is Shammai. Now, you may not remember that name either, but do you remember a few weeks ago the man who <clears throat> who was throwing dirt and mud at David as he was leaving Jerusalem? The man that was cursing at David. Okay? That was Shammai. Look what the text says. And Shammai the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? So Abishai is not buying it, right? Verse 22, but David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? 
For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So the writer gives us this first person who comes out to meet David as he's about to cross the river. And we have no idea if Shammai's repentance was genuine. It's entirely possible that this change of heart was just motivated by his own desire to keep his head, right? Because if anybody from the last several chapters deserves to die for rejecting David, it was probably this guy, right? His words and actions did not age well at all. And Abishai is right. Shammai deserved to be executed by all the laws of the land, not publicly forgiven by the king's oath. But David doesn't just kind of silence him, right? He, Abishai speaks up and David literally rebukes him. He even calls him an adversary. And when I read this, I couldn't help but think about Matthew 16. Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to die. And Peter, with good intentions, takes Jesus aside where no one else can hear and begs Jesus not to say things like that. You remember what Jesus said to Peter, his closest friend? He said, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And in a very similar way, David kind of pushes Abishai aside and he is intentionally showing grace. He is forgiving Shammai and even his closest advisors could not talk him out of it, which is pretty remarkable in, in my opinion. So that's the first person, but then there's another person that comes out to welcome David home, and his name was Mephibosheth. Do you remember him? Verse 24, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Ew. <laughs> And when he came to Jerusalem, he met the king, and the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And if you remember, this was kind of a controversy a couple chapters ago. Why did this guy not come with me? Verse 26, he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle the donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. Remember, Mephibosheth is, is crippled. He can't walk. Verse 27, But he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further have, right have I then to cry to the king? So, makes sense. Um, very believable. We have known Mephibosheth as a man of character. A good man. And after hearing this explanation and hearing Mephibosheth's humility, 
we might expect David to respond with even more grace than he showed Shammai, right? But that's not what happens at all. Look at what David says, verse 29. The king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all. Since my lord, the king has come safely home. Now, this is kind of a surprising response by David. Now, we all know as the readers that Ziba was in the wrong. He lied, not Mephibosheth. And some commentaries suggest that maybe David was testing Mephibosheth when he says this. And it's pretty obvious that the guy passes the test, right? He obviously doesn't care about the inheritance. He wasn't doing this to try to get his land back. He only seems to care that David is home. And that reminds me also of another lesson from Jesus' ministry. There are many instances where Jesus repeatedly tries to teach his disciples something about, um, about following him. And the disciples were constantly fighting among themselves about what? About which one of them was the greatest, right? They're always bickering about this. And Jesus always responded to that argument the same way. He always said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I think he said that as a challenge. There's a question underneath that challenge. Did they care more about being with Jesus or did they care more about getting the benefits of being with Jesus? And do you understand the difference, right? He's saying both the first person into my kingdom and the last person I invite into my kingdom basically are getting the same reward. They get to be with me. They get to be with Jesus, right? And so he's asking them, is that really enough for you? Or are you more concerned with what God can do for you? Is he your joy? Or do you only want him to give you what you think is going to make you happy? There's a, a concept for a reality show that's been used um, several times in different ways. Um, Never really been interested in any of them. But the first version was called Joe Millionaire. Does anybody remember that show? Pretty old now. It's probably 15 years old. But it's a pretty basic idea. So they take this normal, you know, working class guy and they put him in a mansion and they give him nice clothes and cars and watches and he pretends to be a millionaire. And then they bring in a bunch of single women who are competing for the chance to marry Joe. And it was a complete disaster. <laughs> Why? I mean, it was fun to watch, I guess, but from Joe's perspective, it was a disaster because Joe has no way of knowing, are these women actually interested in me or are they just interested in the money? Right. And no one wants to be in a relationship like that. 
And here's the thing. God is no different. If you give to God your money, your time, your prayers, your Bible study, if you're only giving that stuff to God to get something from Him, then you're really just giving to yourself. Right? How's that any different from the single women who fell in love with Joe, but did they really? And you know the difference in your heart, right? Do I really love God? Do I really value my relationship with Him? Or am I just doing this to get something from Him? If you do stuff only for if you do stuff for Jesus only to get his favor, then you really are doing it for yourself. You're not really doing it for God, right? But God means so much more to the Christian than what he can do for us. And I think Mephibosheth gets it. Keep the land. I've got the king. There's one more character that the writer tells us about. It starts in verse 31. His name is Barzillai. Now, Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Ragalim. I have to practice all these words. You know that, right? It's not just automatic. Barzillai, Barzillai. And he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim. Had to practice that one. For he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should grow or go up with the king to Jerusalem? He said, I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. Now, one thing is clear to me. Of the three men in this story, Barzillai really seems to be David's favorite. Probably an old friend, obviously a faithful servant, in contrast, we have no idea who Chimham was, and he's never mentioned again in the entire Bible. 
But on the word of Barzillai, David accepts Chimham into his own household, which is a big deal. So he's offering this tremendous blessing to Barzillai, but basically just on the dude's word, he transfers the blessing of the old man to this other guy named Chimham, and together they walk across the Jordan River. Now, that is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel that you will find, not just in this chapter, but in the book. And it, this chapter is absolutely teeming with gospel imagery. And hopefully you're used to this by now. As we've gone through Samuel, there's been a lot of beautiful things, a lot of beautiful connections to Jesus. This is the beauty of Scripture. And I want, to, I want you to see it. Okay, so they're crossing the Jordan River. They're moving from east to west. Okay, east in the Bible is the direction of the enemy. It's outside the, it's outside the hope. It's outside the blessing of God. It's the cursed direction, right? So they're moving from east to west. They're moving back into the promised land. They're going home out of exile. And this is the same place where Jesus was later baptized by John in the Jordan River. And this is where Jesus received the blessing of the Father and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And like Jesus or like David, Jesus came out of the water with a heart full of forgiveness, with an understanding of what it is to live his life as a blessing for others. Jesus was eager to bless people like Shammai, people who clearly didn't deserve it. He was eager to heal and restore people like Mephibosheth. And all those people wanted to do after they met Jesus was follow him, right? Read through the Gospels and the stories of the lives whom Jesus affected. They just wanted to follow him. They just wanted to be with him. And we see hints of that in these stories with David. And then David transfers the blessing of Barzillai, a faithful servant, to some other dude named Chimham who's basically, at least biblically, a nobody. We're, we're told nothing about him, not who his daddy was, not where he was from, nothing, right? And David says, I will do for him whatever seems good to you, Barzillai, and all that you desire of me, I will do for you. And so Barzillai basically traded places with Chimham willingly. And of course, in the same way, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, second person of the Trinity, trades places with us. And he specifically asked the Father to forgive us. To give us His blessing. His inheritance. And on the word of Jesus, this is exactly what the Father does in the Gospel. And that's what Paul means in Colossians when he says this. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
across the Jordan to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, we are carried over the Jordan from exile out of the cursed place into the place of blessing, into eternal sonship. In Jesus, we are home. But now I want you to consider 2 Samuel 19 as a whole. The response of most people in receiving David was lukewarm, half-hearted, and motivated only by self-protection. They're actually sad about it, right? I mean, they wanted David to be killed by Absalom. Crucify him. And according to the author, there's really only a few of them worth mentioning that seem to genuinely love David and want David as their king. But you also also have to see clearly that the people, though they may have been lukewarm toward David, David was fierce in his forgiveness and his radical forgiveness won their hearts. Clearly says that. David won their hearts as of one man. And that's what the story teaches us. So they approached David in doubt, in, in, in lukewarmness, in non-committal nonsense, right? This is how they approached the anointed one of God. But do you see how David receives them? You see how he wins them. And that's what this story teaches us. So my question for you, for me, is who are we in this story? Who am I? Am I one of the nameless Israelites who's only interested in what God can do for me? Is that you? Is your relationship with God really just kind of this surface level, you know, what can God do for me? Is it, is it sort of a relationship of self-protection, Right? Hell might be real and I don't want to go there. So I believe in Jesus, right? Get me out of that. Is that you? Are you Shammai? Are you someone who literally or maybe just in your heart, in your mind, secretly, you're cursing the name of God? You're angry with him. And now you're at his mercy, right? This is the doubter. This is the skeptic. This is the one who's angry about something that God let happen to you. And in your heart, you've been cursing him. And you're going to be angry and you're going to be doubting until God reveals his grace and wisdom to you. And I pray he does it today. Are you Mephibosheth? Broken and cast aside by this world and now waiting for God to take you home, right? These are the people who feel like they have no place in this world. Life has been difficult for you. You feel alone. You feel rejected. You feel abandoned. You feel traumatized in some way. 
overlooked, marginalized, whatever word describes your experience, life is difficult and God is literally your only hope. And I pray you'd see that and believe it. Some of you may be Barzillai. You've known God. You've loved God for many years. You're, you're eager to finish well. You're eager to share His blessing with others. You know you don't deserve it. Right? But in truth, most of us are just Chimham. <laughs> just grateful to be counted among the king's people knowing we did nothing at all to earn it. Right? But I want to leave you with this. When is it time to receive Jesus? Because if you go back to the original question that the Israelites were asking in the beginning of this story, that's what they're debating. It's like, when, when are we going to do this? When are we scheduling this event, right? When is it time to receive Jesus? When is it time to meet Jesus at the Jordan River? When is it time to pledge your allegiance to him? And what does it look like to trust and to love and to follow the king? Now, listen, that's between you and him. I can't get up in that. Only the spirit can do that for you, right? Only the spirit can map that out for you and put that call and that conviction on your life that it is time. But in as much as you're engaged in that process and you're trying to listen to the spirit talking to you, whether it's this morning or some other point, I would not delay Because tomorrow is not promised. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the returning king. You are the king that was promised. And you have been to earth once and you will come again. And it might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might not be in our earthly lifetimes, but you will come again. We profess this faith in you, knowing that we have done absolutely nothing to earn a place in your kingdom. We have been the doubters and the skeptics. We have been the broken and the hurting. We have been... The lukewarm and the distant. Truth be told, we show up for this relationship when we feel like it. When we feel like we need something from you. I pray that it would be more. I pray that you would give us hearts like Mephibosheth, just eager to be with you and not to get something from you. I pray that we would have the mission in mind like Barzillai, that we would be quick to bring others to you, that they might experience the blessing of the King. Most of all, I just pray that we would experience your grace this morning and every morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.